I'm so glad to be here. And uh, I know that this is a exciting time of the year. Spring is definitely springing here in, um, in Arizona for sure, where it's gonna be in the 80s today. Uh, and I know that we're even, no matter where you are, uh, if you're in the Northern hemisphere, spring is definitely springing. So this is, this is just a beautiful time of the year. We have been talking about the promises and you know, there's promises all through this book. You know, there's promises from the very beginning and there's promises on the title page and there's promises all through the book. But when we talk about the promises, primarily people are focusing in on the ninth step promises and some are focused on the 10th step promises, which we're gonna get into, maybe not today so much, but we're definitely gonna get into them next week. And these are very, very beautiful promises. And you know, if you're anything like me, you came in here with a very skeptical kind of nature. Um, nobody comes in here, <clears throat> excuse me, Nobody comes in here on a roll. Nobody comes in here uh, because things went really well for them. We come in here because things are just not going so well for us. Isn't that the case? Most, you know, almost all the time. Um, so we come in with an amused skepticism about some of these promises. And when people would read the promises, <clears throat> My allergies are bonkers right behind my eye sockets. My head is going crazy. So please bear with me. I am allergic to so much of what is going on here today. The plants and, and the, the buds and everything is just getting me nutso. Um, but anyway, sorry. <clears throat> I came in with a real skepticism. Things had not gone my way for a long, long time. And I prayed to be thin and I remained fat. And I tantrumed at God and I tantrumed with a knife and a fork in my hand. And I tantrumed throwing cookies and chocolate down my throat. What was I doing? I was tantruming because the world that I was born into was just not sticking to my script. It just wasn't doing what I felt I deserved to have it do. And when I, even when I came into this program, I knew that it was gonna be years before I would be in anything resembling a normal body. And I'm still waiting, you know, I'm still waiting. I still got, you know, bubby arms and I still got pockets of, of, of flab, but I certainly uh, look a lot better than I did. Maybe not good enough for some, but at least I'm better than I was. There's an old expression. I may not be what I could be. I may not be what I wanna be. Thank God I'm not what I used to be. And that's how I, that's how I remind myself to be very, very grateful for where I'm at today. But we come in here with a skepticism and we come in here and we look at some of these promises and in our egotistical mind sometimes, we accept ourselves from having them come true in our lives. And let me assure you that these promises are alive and well in my life. These promises are definitely alive and well. And last week, we got all the way from, if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, and we're going to begin today with fear of people and of economic insecurity. I don't want to get to the fear of people and of economic insecurity just yet. I want to talk about something that's very, very overlooked by some. And I want to remind myself, I don't know if I'm going to remind you successfully, because you may be smart enough where you already know this, but I need a good reminder. You see, the first line in this whole paragraph of promises is if we are painstaking about this phase of our development. You know, <clears throat> I grew up in Chicago. 
And in Chicago, it's very corrupt at times, very, very corrupt. And a lot of times you make a payoff to this person or you skirt this around, you know the right person, you know this guy or you know that guy, you can get a driveway put on your house, you can beat a traffic ticket, you can this, you can that, you can beat the zoning laws. And we get used, I got used to that kind of situation. And I came in here to Overeaters Anonymous, and this is what I found. It's not about who you know. It's not about who you're going to pay. It's not about any of that. You're gonna, I'm going to have to play it straight up, and I'm going to have to do the work. Now, if you're around me, or if you've heard me on Vision, or you've heard me on some of my podcasts, you know that this is, <clears throat> please excuse me, this is a mantra of mine. And the reason that it's a mantra of mine is there's one person that I know for sure that needs to hear this and it's me. This is not a program for people who need it. It's not a program for people who want it. This is a program for people who do it. It is an action program. And the reason that I say that so much of the time is because I love to rest on my laurels. And what I'm reminded of, and we're going to talk about this, <clears throat> excuse me, as we get into the 10 step promises. If I stop doing the work and I stop increasing the amount of work that I do, I will be smashed from behind. I'll be tackled from behind by this disease because the disease is progressive. What does that mean, progressive? That means that every day of my life, whether I'm abstinent or not, whether I'm working a program or not, whether I am sponsoring or not, whether I am in meetings or not, my disease is getting worse. Let me say that again, because it's so important that I know our egos are not going to let us retain it, because my ego is such that my confusion will come up from what my ego, <clears throat> excuse me, please. My confusion is born out of what my ego does not want me to understand. You see, there's nothing in this program that is so complex, so complicated that you can't understand it or that I can't understand it. And yet, I get confused and yet I get scared and yet I get angry because my ego says, no, I'm the exception to the rule. And my confusion comes from what my ego does not want me to see. If you want to explain physics to me or chemistry to me, or God forbid, the worst of all possible classes for me was math. Can I tell you a secret here? There's only 132 of us here. I'm going to tell you a secret. I got through algebra by promising Mrs. Leonard at Mather High School that I would not take trig and I would not take calculus. I said, Mrs. Leonard, you have my word on my on God, on my parents. I will never take a math class in my life that I don't absolutely have to take. I will not do it. So she said, okay, I'll give you a D based on that promise. And I said, thank you, Mrs. Leonard, from the bottom of my heart. I will never forget you. And I never have. She's gone to the great classroom in the sky since because it's almost 50 years since I graduated high school. But I have never forgot her for that kindness. She passed me in algebra with a firm resolution never to take another math class. And kept my word. Good Lord, I've kept my word. Okay. So if we are painstaking about this phase of our development, that means that I'm going to have to be in a, in a place of action. And action is the key. And the other thing that I learned the hard way, and we're going to be talking about this because after the promises, we're going to talk about step 10. What I need to remember is I have nothing to give anybody else 
until I am in recovery. You know, I have flown a lot of flights. I have been on a lot of airplane flights in my life. And as a kid, I never flew anywhere. But then I went and I joined OA and good God, I've logged in a lot of miles. But on every airplane ride that I've ever taken in my entire life, there was a great Al-Anon meeting. They have Al-Anon meetings on airplane flights. I bet you might not have known that. Here's what they say. They say, put your mask on first and then help the child or the person that you're with. Put your mask on first. And that's part of the work that I need to do. And, you know, that's part of the reason that I relapsed after a long period of abstinence before is I was so embroiled in step 12 that I forgot steps 10 and 11 and I ended up relapsing. Let's go back to the promises. We've given ourselves a little bit of a review. We don't need to as much review this week as we've had in, the, in some of our past uh, meetings, but let's continue on with the promises. And we're on page 84, fear of people. We're about three quarters of the way down from the beginning of that page. It says fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. And you know, I fear people. I don't know whether I have a fear that developed because people were very cruel to me. People were highly abusive to me. People were judgmental at, with me. And I was an open target for any wisecracker from the time I was a little kid or maybe I feared people because I have social anxiety. I really don't know. I know there's people that have normal weights that fear people too. But I want to talk about that for just a minute because it's very, very important. And I want to share with you how that, how that promise is coming true. Notice I didn't say came true because it's not a destination. It's a journey. No matter what happens in this program, my recovery is a journey. It's not a destination. Uh, a number of years ago, I did a retreat in New Jersey, South Jersey, near Philadelphia. I think the place was Mount Laurel, New Jersey, but I know for a fact on Saturday night, we had dinner in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, because Cherry Hill plays into Bill's story. And my friend in South Jersey wanted me to have dinner there. And we did. And I was thrilled, even though I was so tired. I, I was so tired, I could barely see straight. I now know I had dinner in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. But anyway, I was was in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And this very lovely friend of mine came up to me as we broke for lunch. I didn't used to spit when I talked, but I think that's a product of getting old. Too many birthdays. But anyway, the bottom line is she came up to me and she says, when I'm done with the steps, can I call you? And I said, I don't think so. And she looked at me like I was purple with three heads. And I said, because we work the steps every day of our life. And the only time we stop is when we're dead and there's no phone in the box. So she laughed and we're still good friends today. Fear of people came to me from the abuse that I took from strangers and the abuse that I took from people that I knew. My size made me open game for any wiseacre. I was fit and there was no hiding the fact that I was fat. You couldn't hide it. You couldn't do anything with it. And there was no getting around this fact. As a fat person, I feared the abuse that others had been heaping on me from the moment I was born. Men did it. Women did it. Children did it. It was a fact of my life. There were people in public places, mostly children, but sometimes adults that would laugh at me and point at me and make me an object of ridicule. There were people that I did not even know on more than one occasion that came up to me in restaurants and took the food off my table and gave it to the busboy and said, this man is morbidly obese, he doesn't need this, and gave it to the busboy, and all of a sudden, 
I had to look like I was okay with what they were doing. On some occasions, people would come up to me and they would slap my stomach or slap my ass or grab my stomach or grab my ass and say, my God in heaven, why are you so fat? I've told you the story during my ninth step of the, of the endodontist, the guy that does the root canal. He came into my, into his room, into the office <clears throat> and never said hello to me or nice to meet you, Mr. Grabowski, or thank you for coming in or whatever. His first words to me is, you have to be the fattest human being I've ever seen in my entire life. My God in heaven, what do you eat? And he said to me that he did not want me as a patient and that he was afraid I was going to break his chair and that I'm the fattest person he's ever seen. And I smell and I'm this and I'm that. And this was my life. No wonder I begged God for death on a daily basis. No wonder I wanted death more than I wanted life. And people would say to me all the time, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. And inside I would say, I hope you're right, I hope you're right, I hope you're right. I did not want to live in this world. I did not know how to live in this world. I saw no point to living in this world. And this is the only life I'm ever going to have. This is the only life I'm ever going to have. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is it. There is no do-overs. Believe me, if there were, I would have signed up for a do-over a long time ago. Nothing would make me happier than to be a freshman at Mather High School in Chicago once again and have everything to do over again with what I know now. And of course, I feared people. They humiliated me and they hurt me, and they hit me, and they pushed me. And there were two events in my life that were probably more humiliating than any other event, buying clothes or going to a doctor. Buying clothes or going to a doctor was a nightmare. And today I can buy clothes, I can go to a doctor, I can take care of my health. I can walk into a grocery store. I can walk through an airport. I can walk through a hotel. I can walk through the world that I was born into and nobody thinks a thing of it. And as such, my fear of people has subsided to a minimum amount. I would be a liar if I didn't say that sometimes when I meet new people, I don't have a little bit of a chill, a little bit of a fear because I don't know quite how they're gonna react to me. But I think that's more normal than abnormal. But once I get to know you, once I kind of get it, you know, I, I walk six days a week, three miles a day, six days a week. I'm so grateful to God that I can say that to you and that I can do it. What a miracle. What a miracle. I didn't used to be able to get off the toilet. I didn't used to be able to get out of bed without a maximum amount of discomfort. And I can walk three miles a day. Now it takes me 90, 95, 100 minutes, but I do it. I finish. Some days I don't, you know, but that's very, very, very much the exception rather than the rule. And I go to the swimming pool at the Jewish Community Center uh, and I walk against the, in this, I do the walking in the morning real early. And then in the afternoon, I go to the pool and I walk against the resistance of the water and I work out my knees and my, I have false knees and false hips. So I work out my knees and hips. And I'm able to do those things. And I'm able to reap the benefit of those things. But the fear of people when I come out in a bathing suit, I don't even have to think about it anymore. I'm okay. I come out in a bathing suit and during the summer, there not during the pandemic, there are hundreds of children there 
in the kids pool, not in our pool, but in the kids, hundreds of kids running around and they don't think a thing of me. They don't point at me. They don't laugh at me. And I don't have to pretend that it doesn't hurt. Why was I born into a world that I literally didn't fit into? I don't know. I don't know. But an agoraphobic existence is not a healthy existence for me. And now I can walk out into the world. And if I meet someone, I can stick my hand out and I can say, it's nice to meet you. I don't have to fear that they're going to hit me, slap my stomach, ask me when the baby hippopotamus is due, tell me that I'm the perfect guy to play Santa Claus. Ask me what I swallowed, how many watermelons did I eat? They're not gonna comment on what I eat on a daily basis or ask me how much I weigh. I haven't been asked in public, how much do you weigh in 20 some years? Now, the hard part for me when it comes to fear of people used to also be because I feared conflict. I feared conflict. And anytime you throw people together, you're going to have conflict. And because I have worked out so many of these issues through the steps, I no longer have to worry about what you think of me or do you like me or am I okay in your book? If we have a disagreement, I'm more than willing to work it out. If we can't work out the disagreement, I am good letting go of you with love. I am okay letting go of you with love that I don't have to force myself into a situation that doesn't work for me. We may have a disagreement. We may be able to work it out. We may not be able to work it out. I couldn't tell you, I don't know, and I leave it to God. I don't have to go to sleep at night every day wondering, what are you thinking of me? What are you thinking of me? I already know the answer, nothing. And whatever it is you're thinking of me, if your life is that vapid, if your life is that empty where you are thinking of me, I hope it's pleasant. But if it's not, oh, well, if I've done the best that I can to resolve any issues between us and I have made amends for anything that I might have done that was that was harmful to you the rest is up to God there are people today that were very very difficult people in my life that I've known for a very long time that I do not have contact with I I'm at an age now, I'm gonna be 67 years old here in about 15 minutes, that's how quick it goes. I'm gonna be 67 in May. There are people that are, they're from a, they're, they love to argue, they love to fight, they love to contest everything I say. They're not in my life today. I'll wish them a happy birthday once a year, maybe once in a year, once a year, at Rosh Hashanah or New Year or January 1st, I'll wish them Happy New Year. Other than that, they're not in my life. I love them. If they were sick, I would go and see them. But if they are that contentious, I leave them alone. Not out of fear, out of just understanding that I can't make everyone like me or agree with me. And that's as it should be. Fear of people in my life is normal. I don't sit in the house. Oh my God, I've got to go to the grocery store. And it's like, I'm going to go like at three o'clock in the morning. Or I'm, that's what I used to do. I used to try to go like one o'clock in the morning. Well, the stores aren't open like that anymore. 
I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. Maybe where you live, they are open 24 hours a day. Even the, the superstore is no longer open 24 hours a day. So no matter what I do, I'm going to have to be vulnerable to seeing people. That's a lot of time on that first promise. So we're going to leave it now. But I don't have to fear people like I used to. And it's really okay. It's really okay if we disagree. That's all right. That, that's, that's healthy. That's fine. And if economic insecurity will leave us. I'm in a dying business. I'm in a dying industry. I sell on the telephone. Not a good way to make a living. The reason that I do this is because where was I going to go to get a job? I have a college degree. I'm reasonably intelligent. I'm reasonably articulate. I'm reasonably okay. But where was I going to go get a job walking in at five, six, seven hundred pounds? How was I going to walk in and say, okay, I'm here for the job? Who in the hell was going to hire me? Who was going to hire Man Mountain Harlan? Who in their right mind was going to give me a job or take me seriously as I broke the office furniture and was laying on the floor, unable to get up? Who was going to give me a job? My income is not what it used to be, but my bills are paid. My credit is good. Yes, I would love to be retired. I would not, I don't want to work anymore. I wish I could retire, but I have to work all the time. And I can't afford a lot of the things I used to be able to afford. But thank God, my house, my house is mine. Now I do pay a mortgage and that's not, I mean, it's not paid off. I pay my mortgage. I pay my assessment. My credit is A1. I live according to my means. I don't spend money that I don't have. And for the love of God and only the love of God, I am not spending thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year on candy and fast food and garbage that was killing me, that was making everything worse. I wasn't doing that. And I, I mean, I'm not doing that. I was doing that. I'm not doing it anymore. And so that is a very, very big savings for me is that I'm not spending money on crap that I don't need and that I don't want Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. I go to the top of page 63. I go to the top of page 63 and I read it and I know that I will be taken care of. I will be okay. I will be okay. All I have to do is keep working hard. I have to do God's work. I have to do my work and everything will be okay. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. Many, many times in my life, there had been conflicts with people or things that scared me and I would react out of fear or react out of anger or react out of insanity. And I, it never went well when I would react that way. It only goes well when I breathe and I just relax and I breathe and I relax and I do a 10 step. And now everything becomes more clear. Every single time I react out of that fear, every time I react out of the gate with that with that knee-jerk reaction, it never, ever, ever goes well for me. Never. Never. And I intuitively know how to handle the situations like I was just telling you with the people. In our, in our life, in our world, I don't have to live in a world where I have to make everybody like me. 
I wish there were things that were different in my life today. I have a daughter, lives in Brooklyn, New York. Crown Point or Crown Heights, I'm not sure. Crown something. My daughter is very Orthodox Jewish. She lives in either Crown Point or Crown Heights. Not sure which. But um, she doesn't speak to me. I don't know why. I don't think she knows why either. But she got it in her head that I'm a terrible person and she doesn't talk to me. I wish that was different. I wish I didn't have to go to sleep alone every day. I wish I didn't have to wake up every day alone. I wish I could retire. Well, okay, fine. But you know what? I have a great life. I have a life that's worth living. And I have a life that includes service. And I have a life that includes people. I have a life that includes people, men and women all over this world that love me and I love them. And we are each other. And I have a purpose to my life. I have a beautiful purpose to my life. How many people get up in the morning and know that they have a reason to be alive? I do. And that's this program. My real purpose is to be of maximum service to God and the people about me. How many people know that? How many people really, really know what their reason for surviving these things is? Last Monday night, I, I go to a Scottsdale-based meeting, although most of the people are not from Scottsdale since the pandemic. We have people from all over. And last Monday night, I got to listen to a very, very inspirational lead from a woman who lives on the West Coast, just had a dreadful, dreadful childhood, the kind of childhood that would make you cringe. It's the subject of nightmares, for sure. It's the subject of bad novels, for sure. And yet there she is, and she's bright-eyed, and she's, she's upbeat, and she's full of love and full of generosity, full of charity for the people about her. She's quick to help and quick to jump in. And she, she's just full of life because of this program, because of this program. I wanna say that without this program, I fear not that I'd be dead, but that I never would have lived because I never would have known true love, the love of self, the love of God, the love of others, the love of program, the love of purpose. I would have never known the gratitude that I feel in my heart. So we will intuitively know how to handle situations that baffle us. And every single day of my life, these situations come up without exception. How am I going to handle some of the people that call me and ask me this question or that question? Well, now I have a way of doing it. Sometimes what I have to say is something that I was scared to say for a long, long time. And that is, I don't know. I don't know. I wish I did. Okay. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. You can't get to where I am in life today without God's help that I know of if you're an addict like me. You see, God in his infinite wisdom did not have Bill Wilson write down, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety. That would have been too limited. It would have been too constrictive. It would have been too, too the ceiling would have been way too low. He didn't have him say, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. That would have been too low of a ceiling. He said, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Sanity is more protracted. Sanity is more open-ended. Sanity is more all-encompassing. See the guy behind me? He knew. He knew that this program is not just going to bring me to a place of neutrality around food. He knew. He knew it 
that this program will start to heal areas of my life that I did not even know were broken. I didn't come in here to heal my relationships with other people, but that's what happened. I didn't come in here to want to live, but that's what happened. I wanted to die so desperately. I hated looking at myself in the mirror. I hated having a stomach that hung down to my knees when I was sitting. I hated having an overhanging stomach by the time I was about 12 years old. I hated wanting to eat all that food and people making fun of me. I hated being emasculated physically by this disease. I hated being emasculated emotionally by this disease. I hated the humiliation of this disease. I didn't come in here to find a way to want to live. And in my heart, there were coals that were burned out and, and sticks and, and, and twigs that were burned out, that were black from being burned. And God whispered on the one ember in my heart that only he could have found that was not spent. And he whispered on it and in, in, he whispered and it burst into flames and it has sustained me to this day. I want to live. I like myself. I didn't come in here to like myself, but I do. And oh, I hated myself so desperately. I couldn't stand the way I looked. I couldn't stand always being the fifth wheel in a world of couples. I couldn't stand not being and looking like the other kids. I hated it. And now I wanna live and I wanna maximize every day as it comes. I want to maximize each day. I want to maximize my life. I can't do this myself. Only God could have done for me what I could not do for myself. Oh, and by the way, I've lost a little over 500 pounds. Oh, and by the way, I have an economic life that works. Oh, and by the way, I have a brand new lease on life every day that I'm willing to work the steps. Oh, and by the way, there are miracles happening in my life and in this world that I cannot account for other than the grace of God. There are 149 of you on the line right now. What you're listening to started out as something that I did in a place in Scottsdale called the Coffee Plantation. I was sponsoring a woman, which I don't do anymore. <sighs> and she was new to the program, very, very obese, new to the program. That's why I sponsored her because she was north of 300 pounds. And I was teaching her big book in a place called the coffee plantation on a Saturday morning. And there were a bunch of AA guys sitting at a table right next to us. And I didn't know that they were listening. And they came back the next week and the next week. And I recognized them. they kept sitting in the, in the table next to me, next to us. And I kept working with this person. And one of the things we did was meet every Saturday morning. One day, one of them turned around and said, could we just join you? And I asked the other person, would it be okay? And she agreed and they joined us. They didn't stick around for more than about 10, 15 weeks or so. But in the interim, other OA people started coming and they started joining us. And I had a little group that would meet every Saturday morning. 
and we would study the big book just like we're doing now. And then the pandemic hit and a lady named Pam in North Carolina and a lady named Maria in Ireland. There's a difference for you. And a lady named Sue and a lady named Lauren and a lady named Nancy. And I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. They said, cause we were doing it on the phone for a while, just like vision does just on the phone. And we got a number and people were calling into the number and then came an idea. Let's chuck this thing on the phone and let's put it on Zoom. Had there not been a pandemic, there wouldn't be this. Now I am not oblivious to the fact that a half a million Americans are dead and in their graves. And I think that's horrible, horrible. And I mourn them and I'm so very, very sorry. But look what God did. Look what God did with this. He put it on Zoom. And today, as we're sitting here now, there are 150 of us tuned in right now from the garbage God made a garden. You've heard the story of the twins. They come down. It's their birthday. And the room, the living room is full of horse manure. And one of the twins says, oh, darn it. All we get is horse manure. And the other twin comes down and he gets himself a shovel and he's digging away. He is thrilled. And somebody says to him, what are you so happy about? He says, man, with all this horse junk in here, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. And God gave us a pony, hopefully a pony, hopefully something good. Otherwise, I don't think you'd be tuning in. Let's continue page 84. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. They will always materialize if we work for them. Not if you sit around going to a bunch of meetings. Just going to meetings isn't going to produce the necessary spiritual awakening. Just going to meetings, just being abstinent is a bare start. It's a bare necessity of the program and we need to take it further. All we do is, is, is go to meetings and that we're not going to get recovered. It's not going to happen. One of the things I cringe when I hear, I cringe when I hear this. I'm doing 90 and 90 with my sponsor. All right, I have a question. What happens on day 109? What happens on day 127? What happens on day 381? What happens then? 90 and 90 is great. I go to meetings every day. I don't, I don't miss days of meetings. I'm on a meeting every single day. At the very least, on Friday, I go to the vision meeting for two hours in the morning on the phone. That's a bare bones minimum for me. I don't miss. I'll tell you how many meetings of vision I have missed in the last few years. I missed the morning of my last knee replacement. And I missed most of the two meetings. There's two meetings each day in the beginning there. There's the, there's the, um, four o'clock in the morning uh, or five, depending on what time zone we're in at the time. And then there's the next one. When I had my last colonoscopy, it was scheduled for early in the morning. And when I had my cataracts removed, that was for 6.30 in the morning. So those were three times that I've missed most of the meeting because of a medical situation. And that's it. That's, that's the extent of what I have missed. But that in and of itself is not what he's talking about when he says they will always materialize if we work for them. It is not really that late, is it? Holy bananas. Oh my God, I thought we were gonna get, oh my God. 
somebody should have shut me up 15 minutes ago. What's going on with me? All right, anyway, this is not what he's talking about. Maria, you're in charge of holding up a sign that says, shut up and move on. Okay, now, going to 90 and 90, going to a million and a million, going to whatever it is, is not alone the work that we need to do. We need to do the work on ourselves, doing the steps. We need to help others. And we need to continue to expand and enlarge our spiritual life through service and self-sacrifice for others. Now, we're going to begin step 10. But I don't know how far we're going to get because I want to talk to you. And I am going to review this part next week because it's so vital. We are products of the culture that we were born into. And I don't care whether you're a man or a woman or you're white or you're black or you're Jewish or you're not Jewish or you're whatever you are, I don't care. You were born into a culture that preaches and encourages self-sufficiency. You were born in, I don't care who you are, this is true for you and me. You were born into, a, and I don't like to begin sentences with you when I'm doing these things, because it, it, I'd rather begin the sentence with me so you can identify in not, but I'm going to make an exception here. You were born into a culture where you were told as a little girl or a little boy or a little whatever you are, that you can do this. That if you work hard enough, you can do anything you set your mind to. You were taught as a child to exercise your willpower. Don't eat so much, you'll feel better. Only eat half. Don't eat all the cake. Why do you need a cake? Have a glass of water instead. If you cared about your mother, you wouldn't eat so much. If you cared about your father, you wouldn't eat so much. Oh, you're so cute. If only you'd lose some weight. You've got such a pretty face. And the girls get told that too. The girls get told the same thing too. Oh, you're so pretty. You're so wonderful. You're so handsome. You're so this. If only you'd lose weight, everything would be fantastic. And sometimes you lost weight and things not only weren't fantastic, they out and out sucked. Because the pain of not eating is so intense that eating becomes preferable. Now, Recovery is counterintuitive to that self-sufficiency that you were born into. You come in here and it usually takes several years before you get this idea that everything that you have been taught as a child was not applicable to this. You cannot do this yourself. It's not going to happen. You are not an island unto yourself. You are not going to be able to do this. You are not, based on your own willpower, able to fend off the idea of eating the food that you are allergic to and eating the food that you're allergic to, allergic to will trigger the allergy by definition and plunge you into a situation that you don't wanna be in because now you take the mouthful of food and the mouthful of food takes you. Okay, with me so far? Good. This is counterintuitive. Just like dating. I'm not a dating expert, but I can tell you that dating is very counterintuitive. If I want to chase a girl away, the best way to chase her away is pay gobs of attention to her, buy her things, run after her, call her every five minutes, tell her every day, I love you and you're beautiful. They'll run for the hills. They won't be able to pick that girl up on radar. She'll run so far and so fast. This is exactly the same kind of thing. It's counterintuitive. When your mother or father or both or your uncle or your aunt or whatever it is told you that you just need willpower, that was not true here. 
What did Bill find in his life on page seven? Go back with me to page seven for just a minute if you want to. If you don't want to, just listen. I'll read it to you and I'll tell you what Bill Wilson found out. It said here, it relieved me somewhat to learn that in alcoholics, the will is amazingly weakened when it, when it comes to combating liquor, though it often remains strong in other respects. See, I'm going to go back to page 84 now. See, in other areas of your life, your guts, your determination, your hard work, your discipline paid off. And the idea that it's not going to pay off here is a difficult pill to swallow. And it is a pill that your mind doesn't want you to accept because the mind wants you to be self-sufficient so that the ego can remain in charge. The thought of being out of, out of power, out of control is very frightening. Very frightening. If you listen to a vision for you, and you hear some of the questions or you hear some of the shares, you're going to hear people on a vision for you talk about, I don't know if I can trust my sponsor. What's not to trust? I'm not asking you for your money. I'm not asking you to have sex with your wife. I'm not asking you uh, to sell your children to me so I can put them out as, as, as uh, indentured servants. I'm not asking you for your your, your, your car to drive on a Saturday night. What's not to trust me? Why would I lie to you? What's in it for me to lie to you? There's no money. There's no prestige. I can't imagine. And yet you hear this all the time. You hear all the time people saying, I don't know if I can trust a sponsor. I, I don't know what, what there is not to trust. I don't get it. I really don't understand it. So this is a counterintuitive operation. Your discipline, your self-will, your guts, your determination will not work. Won't work here. It will not work here. We only have five minutes left. And then we're going to get into Q&A. We didn't get anywhere close to as far as I wanted to get. But what I am going to say to you is... In 10, we continue, in 11, we improve, and in 12, we practice. And next Saturday, we are going to begin the process of an in-depth study of 10, 11, and 12. And hopefully, we will be able to unlock some of the things about 10 that have been confusing. We're going to unlock the two basic untruths about 10. What are the basic untruths about 10? The basic untruths about 10 is somehow, somewhere, I don't know where this occurred, somebody said that you write them out. You don't have to write them out. You write out an inventory, but in the daily spot check inventory, you call, you talk, you share with another person. So that's number one that we're going to throw out the window. Number two, the other untruth about step 10 is that it is something that you do in the morning and at night only. And that is step 11, not step 10. So we've got about four minutes extra. And rather than start step 10 right now, what I would like you to do is indulge me